Welcome to the Next Level Leaders Podcast with me, Dr. Joseph Walker. This podcast is designed to offer strategies and moving vision to reality. Leaders can expect to be mentored, inspired, challenged to succeed at the next level. So prepare to be exposed, empowered, and equipped for excellence. I'm excited today because we're using our first podcast to share my journey and story of how I became the leader I am today. So you know what? I grew up in a place called Shreveport, Louisiana. And uh, Shreveport is a, a very interesting city. It's the second largest city in the state of Louisiana. I grew up as a young kid on a street called Cheatham. Cheatham Street was an amazing place. Um, I had no idea growing up that we were poor, you know, because our parents uh, treated us as if though we were the richest poor kids in the neighborhood. I thought everybody uh, ate spaghetti four and five times, you know, a week. I thought... Everybody had that cheese when you cut it, it looked like a ramp, you know. Uh, I had no idea uh, of the struggles that my parents endured to put us to school, to provide for us. We always had, when it was time to go to school, we had clothes and Christmas came around. We never had a Christmas where nothing was under the tree. And a lot of that had to do with growing up, witnessing my father, my mother, and their work ethic. My mother taught special education um, and it's amazing, right? Because I used to go and sit in her classroom sometime and see her patients and see how she had a gift and an anointing to do that. I think that whatever we're called to do, there has to be a level of anointing tied to it. Uh, you can have a passion for something, but if there's no anointing, there'll be no patience for it. My mother had patience to deal with kids, with challenges, to deal with parents who didn't understand why their kids were not developing at the pace in which they should. My mother had the capacity to deal with so much. And I think that kind of helped her deal with, I guess, being uh, the wife of a man who was an entrepreneur. You know, my dad was uh, in the early 60s, 70s. My dad at a time in the South when it wasn't popular for African-American men to be entrepreneurs, my dad opened up a janitorial service. Now, I understand my dad went to Wiley College. I mean, if you may have seen the great debaters and my dad was actually in school during that time. My dad's 91 years old. And my dad began this business, and it's interesting how it began because, you know, it brings tears to my eyes to talk about it. When my dad was a teenager, he talked about how he and some kids would be down in Shreveport by the railroad tracks, and they were shining shoes and just trying to make money. And the police came down and ran them away. And my dad stood there and looked at this police officer and said, all we're trying to do is just make money. We're not hurting anybody. And he told them, y'all get away from here, little boys, and ran them away. And my dad said to me and my brothers, I never will let you guys shine shoes as long as you live. And my dad started uh, a janitorial service. Now, the thing about this is Walker's House Cleaning Service became the only other custodial service in Shreveport other than Shreveport Wonder Cleaning Service, which was predominantly a white um, conglomerate. And my dad's you know, mom and pop operation literally was making waves because my dad got a big contract with Barksdale Air Force Base, which was huge. He outbid it, Shreveport Wonder Cleaning. So my dad did wonder cleaning, waxing floors, cleaning out new construction. And so all the kids that's a rite of passage would end up on what we call the truck. I want you to imagine this white truck <laughs> with ladders on top, with a sign on the side, the Walker's House Cleaning Service. And when you open that truck up, 
all his kids come popping out. The buckets, window cleaning, apparatus, buffers, etc. That was me. We go in and clean houses. Man, we do that. And the truth is we hated it. I'm not going to lie. We hated it. We hated it because most kids do hate work, right? Because there's a sense that we we appreciate the fruit of the work, but we didn't really understand what, you know, created the fruit. And our parents were so committed to making certain we never got spoiled. We never were those kids who were entitled. So they gave us these experiences, right, to make us work so we get out of school, get on the truck, go down to Barksdale Air Force Base, and we'd go to these big houses on the other side of the tracks and we clean these houses of people and wash their windows and wax their floors. And I saw my dad have to come to the back door. We had to drink out the water fountain outside because we couldn't drink on the inside of these folks' houses. And it was it was an humbling experience. As a kid, I kind of normalized it as that's the way life was, but I didn't realize that all along it was a teaching moment. You know, that's how it happens, right? God is giving you these didactic moments and you have no idea uh, that you're in the process of uh, preparation. I watched my dad, you know, continue to uh, work and my dad continued to just make waves and and uh, continue to put that kind of work ethic in me. And one of the things about Cheatham Street um, is that it wasn't just my father, but all my uh, little community cohort, if you will, the fellows I grew up with, we call them the Cheatham Street Gang. We were just all the kids. and But all of our fathers were present, number one, and all of our fathers went to work. You could come outside at 6.45 every morning and you see trucks backing up from every house. You don't see that today, right? But you saw it then, man. It was like, wow, here are men going to work every day. and Mothers are going to work right after them. And it was amazing, right? Because these were homes where statistically we weren't supposed to make it, but we all did because there were parents who were working and taught us that work ethic. And so Growing up like that, man, really created for me a work ethic that I have today. Leaders, the big question is always, are leaders born or leaders made? (laughs) That debate is still out there. But I believe, honestly, that leaders are made. I believe that God can take this raw material and this, this stuff of us and put us in the right environment. And no matter what circumstances you encounter in your life, if you're in the right environment, you can be made to become a leader. I believe that. And I believe that disarms every excuse as to why you can't do what you need to do. Oftentimes, most people are just one experience or exposure away from something clicking and realizing that I'm called to something greater and I got to produce without excuse. That's what it was for me. Cheatham Street. Didn't have any sidewalks. Tar Street. We had ditches. One day, I looked out one day and said, I'm going to live on a street with a sidewalk. It's kind of interesting, right? As a kid, seven years old, all I wanted was a sidewalk. I wanted a sidewalk. On the other side of the tracks on Alma Street, they had sidewalks. Streets were paved. But our streets were tar. They had sidewalks. And that's all I wanted. Right? I just wanted a sidewalk. And even as I think about it, you know, it's as if though life was throwing us in a ditch. The other kids had a path towards something great. I just wanted a sidewalk. And part of me being a leader today is I want you to have a sidewalk and not for life to throw you in the ditch. And you have to climb out. You see, leadership is tough stuff, right? It comes out of our own experiences. It comes out of the stuff we've been through in our lives. And 
you have to chronicle these moments. You have to realize that all along God's been working with you and talking to you and giving you these experiences that you otherwise would have never had had you not gone through these things. For me, when I think about it, man, what my dad had to endure, what my mom had to endure, for us to be able to do what we do today, out of that, you get these amazing kids who come along and do these extraordinary things, judges and lawyers and, you know, CPAs and, you know, people that work in various fields and nobody, you know, did anything bad or atrocious. We just made it, man. And, you know, and I think it has a lot to do with understanding that scripture that says, train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, he will not depart from it. And you have to be very intentional about that with your children. You have to be intentional about what you expose them to. And you have to be intentional about what you give them and what you don't give them. Um, my motivation, my my drive, and it comes from 1834 Cheatham Street. I'll tell you later on in these podcasts, but I bought that house. <laughs> I grew up in I own it today. I still own it. I won't sell it. I own it because I want my children to know this is your legacy. This is where you started. But I ended up actually um, in school. I was an interesting child because I was one of those children that wouldn't sit down. Um, like, you know, they would label me today ADHD because when people don't know what to do with you, they often label you, give you titles and tags because that's the inability to try to understand what's happening with you. Back then, I was just a busy kid. Joseph Walker, here he comes. That little kid from Shreveport, Louisiana, from Cheatham Street, gets off the bus, becomes a terror in the classroom, and nobody knows what to do with me. I can't sit down. I'm always into something. And, you know, back then, the parents would actually whip kids. I got so many whoopings. <laughs> but my parents loved me so much, and they knew that there was something different about me. My grandmother, Doris, Doris, Doris Harrison, rest her soul, she knew something was different about me. She would always tell my mother, there's something on that boy. And uh, they called me into the office one day, called my parents and said, we want to test him for special ed. Um, we think that he has some learning disabilities. We think that he's not focused and maybe he's got some uh, behavioral challenges. And they tested me. My mom and dad were there and found out that I was actually gifted. And from that moment, uh, my parents put drumsticks in my hand. And when they put drumsticks in my hand, never should forget the day. It was on that Christmas, I had a drum set outside and I played that drum set. I beat those drums till I couldn't beat them anymore. All that energy was focused on something, music, right? Music is like the great, you know, uniter. Doesn't matter what divides us, music always unites us. Music is, it transcends culture, it transcends socioeconomic status. Music is powerful. And for me as a kid who was out there, didn't really understand what purpose was, music gave me a way to, release my frustration and to allow myself to actually feel like that was something that was purposeful in my life. I beat those drums and beat those drums and beat those drums until I beat them all the way through school. Music became a catalyst for me. As a catalyst, I was able to take the music through junior high school and high school, became drum major in the band. And it was because of music I ended up at Southern University in Baton Rouge. That's when the magic began to happen. Southern University was an amazing experience, you know, and from Shreveport, Louisiana to Southern, wow, I had a choice, 60 miles to Gramlin, <laughs> 200 or so miles to Southern. I chose Southern. That's the least likely path for somebody from Shreveport, but there were a few of us who went to Southern, but Gramlin was really the feeder for people from Shreveport. My high school band, and I was drum major, 
We were taught discipline, pride, organization. When I was a leader there, I understood something powerful about leadership. And part of leadership is making up your own mind, going against the grain, going against the trend. And for me, something about Southern and the marching band that was so fascinating to me. Isaac Greggs, the late Dr. Isaac Greggs, I found out my mother was one of his majorettes. <laughs> that blessed me beyond measure to know that generationally this man would impact my family, would put in us, again, another work ethic. I can still hear Dr. Greggs today saying, Roll them back. Never be as good as. Be better than. It was that kind of teaching. It was that kind of drive. Created for me a sense of academic achievement. Because when I went to Southern, you have to understand, when I graduated from high school, graduated with like a C average. (laughs) Southern took me in. I went through remedial courses. Those are the classes before you actually get into college. Went into Southern, man. Got into the band. So excited, majored in English. And that journey began the transformation from boy to man. Again, it's about environment. Being on the yard, being at HBCU, a lot needs to be said about that. Some kids need more than just the teacher. They need a support system. And for me, I needed that. Being away from home for the first time, never having summer vacations with my family. I'm away from home as a kid. I'm going through a lot of separation anxiety. But I've got people that have already adopted me on that campus to assure that I was going to get through this process. So I was marching in the band, the mighty Southern University Human Jukebox. And I was also majoring in English. I had every intent on being a lawyer. See, my brother was a lawyer, my hero. My sister was a lawyer. (laughs) <laughs> my shiro, my other sister was a lawyer, my shiro. I was just going to be a lawyer. That's all I knew. I was reading novels when I was 15, 16 years old, on the truck, <laughs> reading novels because I knew if I was going to be a good lawyer, I had to be well read. I had to love the art of reading. So I had every intentions on going to Southern, marching in this band, and being a lawyer when I finished. There's some things about leadership I discovered even marching in that band, right? Precision. I learned never settle for just average. I learned the power of camaraderie and collaboration. So in that process of collaboration, the band at Southern, we learned what it looked like when no one person is bigger than the whole band, right? It's all a unit. It's one sound, one band. All those amazing things we learned. We became men in that band. You know, again, it's about environment. It's about putting yourself in a situation where you allow yourself to be disciplined. You allow people to speak into your life and show you things you don't know. It's when you allow yourself to be disarmed of any preconceived notions you have about what you think is right and submit yourself to a process of one greater and say, show me something I do not know. And that's what happened to me. (sighs) Leading that band, section leader coming through. Academically, one of the most amazing things that happened to me I saw my academic transformation happen simultaneously. Wow. I progressed throughout that process. I pledged a couple of fraternities while I was in school. Kappa Kappa Psi was band fraternity, Omega Psi Phi. All those things, you know, they, they kind of feed you when you're in school, you know. 
Everybody wants to be a part of something. You want to be connected to something. That's just always what school is about. And I began to learn something. Even though the more I was being connected, the more I was being called apart. Kind of an interesting duality, right? The more I'm trying to be connected, the more God is calling me apart. And uh, when I was 20 years old, I was preparing for my last semester, my last year and semester. One year, one semester left in school. I knew I was going to graduate. I was going to go down. I was going to finish. My advisor called me in the room and said, you know you're about to graduate, right? I said, what? I had gone to school every summer. I had taken the maximum amount of hours necessary to graduate and didn't even know I was about to graduate. Here I was, a kid from Cheatham Street with a C average, graduating with a B-plus average from Southern University early in three years. Here I was, majoring in English, learning T.S. Eliot and Chaucer, learning about the great prose and poets of the Harlem Renaissance, reading The Invisible Man, Native Son, all these amazing pieces I began to learn in poetry and writing poetry and not understanding why I'm taking more interest in becoming articulate, taking more interest in being well-read, taking more interest in being culturally expanded. I'm thinking, I'm going to be a pretty good lawyer one day. (laughs) And I'm ready for law school. Boy, I am so ready. I'm preparing. I'm applying. I know. Took the LSAT, aced it. Every law school wants me. I'm ready. It's time to go to law school. And there I was. Standing under my fraternity tree, Southern University, building called T.T. Lane, and I hanging out with all of my frat brothers, and I heard something pull me aside. I thought I was hearing voices. It's hard to imagine that moment because when we're being called, everybody thinks you have to hear Charleston Heston's voice, you know, I am the Lord calling thee. <laughs> But no, 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 no. It was a still, small voice that called me and pulled me away. And I thought I was hearing things. It scared me. That moment when everybody's talking, but you hear nothing but that voice. And I realized that something transformational was happening in my life. And there it was. I was being called into something I had no idea I was being called into. And I ran. Oh, God, I ran. I ran literally and spiritually. I took off running across campus. I'll be back. I just kept running. I ran to the Baptist Student Center. I sat in the chapel. I said, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what it is you want from me. And I heard very clearly God say to me, I want a yes. I got up. I went back to my dorm. (laughs) I went out that night. The furthest thing from a yes came out of my mouth. I was not yielding to this because I want to do my thing. That was that moment, right? Where all of us want our will over his will. There's that moment of tension where you realize that your flesh is fighting everything the spirit of God wants to do. I'm being called into a higher level of leadership. I'm being called. When we talk about to be called, there's a lot of literature out there on what it means to be called, right? Art of becoming and all those things are, are critical for us. But to be called, we all have this experience, but they manifest in different ways. And there's no 
monolithic way in which God calls any of us. He calls us in a variety of ways. For me, this was my experience, and I hope maybe it encourages you to know that there is a call upon all of our lives. But that call always involves us coming out of our comfort zone. Like Abram, getting up out of everything I've always known to be comfortable, to go to a land that God would show me. I finally said yes. Man, there I was. I felt like I was giving up my dream to being a lawyer. I went and talked to my grandmother, Doris Harrison. Doris Harrison said to me, son, you got to make up your mind. Either you're going to be a lawyer or a preacher. I said, well, can I do both? She says, you can't lie and tell the truth at the same time. <laughs> what she was really saying is, son, you got to really choose what you're going to really be focused on. You got to give God your best. I yielded to God's will. The rest was history. I had no idea, absolutely no idea, that those experiences of being a drum major, those experiences of being a session leader, those experiences of being in fraternities and leading organizations on campus were preparing me for what would come next. I left Baton Rouge, Louisiana, summer of 1989. I got in a Subaru <laughs> given to me by my parents. It's a hand-me-down car. Not knowing a person where I was going. Drove from Nashville, from Shreveport, Louisiana. I drove from Shreveport, Louisiana to Nashville, Tennessee. to Vanderbilt Divinity School. See, when you're in the will of God, things just work out was well, well past the time for registration. My pastor, Dr. Harry Blake, made a call to Walter Fluker, who's on faculty, and said to him, my son needs to come to school because a call to preaching is a call to preparation. Vanderbilt made a spot for me after registration was closed. I ended up at Vanderbilt Divinity School. A kid from Shreveport, Louisiana, 1834 Cheatham Street, kid that transcended the truck, the ditch, <laughs> went to school, and here I am on the hollow campus of Vanderbilt. Kid who was told, especially at, passed the test, nobody knew what to do with, went Vanderbilt. How did I get to Vanderbilt? How did a kid like me? Those are the questions leaders ask, right? How did you get where you are? It's like looking at that turtle on top of that fence. You look at that turtle on top of that fence. One thing you do know, you may not have known how he got there, but you know he didn't get there by himself. So Vanderbilt Divinity School, place that stretched uh, my theology. You know, you come in as a kid and you're like, I grew up in church. I know all of what I know theologically based upon my own context, coming out of a Baptist church from the South. And then all of that's deconstructed when I come to Vanderbilt and I cry the first day of school. I am totally in shock that people would think the way they think about my God, my Jesus, my Bible. It is an amazing moment when you realize I'm being challenged in places I never thought. I'm realizing like, wow, why am I here? I'm here not to be constantly affirmed. I'm here to be stretched. 
I'm here to be broken and built back up again. I'm in the academy. I'm walking around Vanderbilt and I'm about to become something. It's amazing when that happens in your life, right? Having the right papers. I'm having to do things and cite sources and read books I never even knew existed. It was an amazing experience. The idea of being prepared for ministry. You know, I would have had no problem with this in law school, but I never thought this would happen in divinity school because not many people that looked like me actually at that time thought theological formal education was important. You were called, then you went to a church and started pastoring. Here I am taking an untraditional route, but a route that would serve great dividends later on in my life to be a trained clergy person at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Wow. Rubbing shoulders with great minds. Being able to sit at the feet of Dr. Samuel DeWitt Proctor, to be his driver, to hear him speak to me about keeping my antennas up. Always know what God is saying. Be astute. Be ready. To be willing to understand how the lessons of Dr. Isaac Gregg's tied into my experience at Vanderbilt. Dr. Gregg's would say to us at Southern, be in the right place at the right time with the right equipment ready to concentrate. And there I was <laughs> in school. First one in class in the right place with my book, the right equipment, ready to concentrate, sitting up front. Trying to take all this in and realize I'm being prepared for something. I don't know what it is, but I know I'm being prepared for it. So there's something about this. There's always a process of training we have to go through. We must be disciplined. Discipline. Discipline, pride organization, right? You got to be disciplined if you're going to be successful. Success does not come because you just want it to come. It comes because you truly are disciplined. And Vanderbilt taught me discipline, if nothing else. It taught me focus. It taught me how to write. It taught me how to write at the next level. It taught me how to think critically about my faith. It taught me how to look at God differently than my denomination. To realize how loving God was and to realize there were people who were called by God who didn't look like me, who didn't even believe what I believe, but they'd be used by God to do great things. That was an amazing thing for me. What's all this mean? You know, when you think about this whole experience, what does what I've shared with you today mean for you? Shreveport, the truck, the parents, all the way through Fair Park High School, marching in the band, Southern University, Vanderbilt University. What, what does that really mean for you? I think it, first of all, says to all of us, never despise small beginnings. I think you have to understand that it's out of those humble beginnings or small beginnings that some of the magic of our lives is, begins to happen. We really are birthed into things that build character. Chicken has to work its way out of its egg, right? <laughs> it cracks, but it works its way from the inside out. It's kind of like our own lives. You have to be willing to say, if I'm in this particular context, why does God have me here? Not to lament, not to complain about how bad life is, but to say, what are you building in my life? You know, there's a reason why the butterfly has wings. The metamorphosis of the butterfly is that it comes out of the cocoon and works its way out unbothered by what is on the outside. But it begins to do it from the inside out. And that caterpillar morphs into a butterfly. I think that's kind of what God was doing with me and what he's doing with you. Using every experience of your life to help build character, build perseverance, to 
be your vision, to be your leadership. Because you learn this stuff quicker at the bottom than you do at the top. That things you get in the valley, you'll never get on the mountain, man. So those moments, man, watching my dad go to work every day, the consistency, understanding in those humble beginnings, take nothing for granted. Nothing comes easy. Those are lessons, man, that I would take with me forever. Lessons you should always value. So while you're trying to throw away those experiences and you're ashamed of those experiences and you want to like eradicate them out of your mind and your thought, go back and say, what is God teaching me? What was he teaching me in my upbringing? What things did I miss? What lessons? What experiences did I have? For me, I wanted a sidewalk. I didn't want a ditch. <laughs> I wanted a sidewalk. I didn't want a ditch. For you, what could that mean? You've got to have the level of focus and you've got to have the drive to want something greater than where you've been. See, exposure is vision. People perish for a lack of vision. Think about it this way. If a person is never exposed, they are prisoner to their own context. I never want to be a prisoner in my own context. My parents will always push me beyond where I was to go and see a world much bigger than I ever imagined. And that's how I ended up not taking the path everyone else would take. But I ended up going down the Southern. What does that mean for you? Sometimes you've got to walk alone. Sometimes you got to not walk in the paths of others, but you got to carve out your own path. When you know you're different, you got to embrace your difference. You got to own it. It's scary. I know it was scary to me too. When you're the one, everybody says, you're going where? We're all going here. But you know, there's something pulling you differently to that. And I look at how my life might've played out had I gone with the crowd. We're not called to be with the crowd, man. Not successful people. You're called sometimes to walk alone. That's the difference between eagles and turkeys. Turkeys flock together. Eagles fly solo. Maybe this is what it means for you, right? You're an eagle. You got to fly solo. Maybe that means you got to develop the capacity to realize that even if you don't understand where God is taking you, you wouldn't trust him in the process and say, take me where I need to be developed, even if it is countercultural and even if it doesn't make sense to the people who I love. Take me. But it also means when my plans are set, it means that I give God permission to disrupt my plans and do with me what he chooses because his plans are greater than mine. In essence, not my will, but his will be done. You could not have told me that I was not going to be the black matlock. <laughs> you could not have told me that I was not going to be a lawyer touching the world through law. And here I am in ministry. It's all because God had plans long before I was born, right? Jeremiah 1. I know the thoughts I think towards you in Jeremiah 29, 11, thoughts of peace, not evil. But I love Jeremiah 1 when he says, before you even formed in the belly, I knew you. Gosh, man. Why didn't you tell me earlier? He didn't tell me because he knew I couldn't handle it. So there's a sense that in your preparation, there's a moment when God gives revelation. but The revelation can't come too soon because you can't handle it. He has to allow you to go through the preparation. Sometimes you have to be prepared for what you don't even know you've been prepared for. All the tears, all the setbacks, all the disappointment is setting you up and building you up for something, getting you ready for something you can't even imagine right now. In a real sense, what it means for you is that a part of leadership is trusting the process. Trusting 
God when I can't trace him. Be willing to say that in this season in my life, I embrace my difference. I realize I'm going kind of culture to everything I've always known. I'm out here. I'm trusting you. But at the same time, I'm believing in where you want me to be. And in that process, it also means that when I'm square in the will of God as a leader, God will position me around the right people at the right places to give me what I need. He set it up like that, right? Some of the people who spoke in my life, the community put it around me. He was giving me a whole new understanding of what community looked like. And I was always leaning on that which was familiar. And God gave me a whole new understanding of people who could be surrogates in my life, to speak to my life into where I was going, not where I've been. Some people speak in your life based on where you've been. And the others who are literally anointed to speak to where you're going. That's where I was connected to the people where I was going. It's a marvelous thing, man, to watch that happen. And for you, you have to be open to that and you can't run from that. And I know sometimes it, it's scary. It's, it'll make you cry. It'll keep you up all night. You'll try to figure it out. But trust the process. Trust what's happening in your life right now and know that this is all designed for your good. And there it is. Romans 8, 28. And we know. I don't know when we know, but we eventually will. <laughs> that all things work together for good. To those who love God and who are called according to not their purpose, but his purpose. There it is. Just like that. Just like that. Somebody like me from Shreveport, Louisiana. Huh? Somebody like you from the place called your Cheatham Street. From your humble beginnings. You're on this amazing trajectory. Not for something self-serving, but for something much bigger than you. For something that God wants to do in and through your life that you probably never dreamt, never imagined. And throughout the process, there are questions that are being asked to you you don't know the answer to. All you can say is, I'm trusting God in the process. I wonder what it felt like for Abram to leave everything and to go to a place that would be shown to him. What did it feel like to leave everything that's familiar? Well, that's a part of leadership. It's not turning your back on what you've known. It's using everything you've known as a part of your preparatory process and let it guide you into the next season of your life. You'll be better because of this. And let me tell you something. <laughs> I cannot wait to share with you how this continues to play out. Because after Vanderbilt came Mount Zion, came Princeton, came tragedy, came great success. And in part two, we're going to talk about this. I guarantee you, you'll understand why it all happens and why it sets you up. It is an important lesson for leaders to know that this is about learning lessons along the way. And I hope from my life lessons, they have inspired you. They have encouraged you. They've empowered you to be all that I know you can be. Until next time, we'll talk again. Peace. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast. I want you to subscribe at iTunes, cpnshows.com, or whatever podcasts are downloaded. I also want you to follow me 
on Instagram at josephwalker3. I look forward to connecting with you.